0: Big fan of just starting things very abruptly, so here we go. Welcome back to the what is it? Third. This is going to be the third episode of the Working Title Podcast. I'm here with my wonderful Working friend that I do not get to see enough, Matthew Fraser. Um, please excuse some background noises; those should subside soon. Uh, Matthew Frazier here. I met him. You were a freshman while I was a senior, correct? That's right. And I'm going to go ahead and flatter him a little bit and say that he was already the smartest person in that class as a <laughs> freshman. And uh, I would say your main your main focus, you are a practitioner of philosophy. What year are you in Dayton right now? I'm in my fourth year. So you're a senior now. Yep. Okay. So he's only an undergrad, but I would say you're one of the most brilliant philosophers I've encountered personally. Just waiting to hear back on a uh, PhD program. Excellent. That's excellent. So... This uh, we have a chessboard in front of us. We're gonna be playing a little bit of that as we go. Matt will most certainly kick my ass. But... You have to give me a hug, by the way. Oh, do I didn't hug you already? No, speaking of abrupt, get over here. Ah, oh, good to see you, man. Okay, so to start off this conversation, since that this podcast is in its most uh, its most basic form, a celebration of people's arts and a showcase of their arts and projects. And to that, I'd like to ask you a little question about, in what way do you, I I personally see philosophy as very much an art form, and I see philosophy as a crossroads of art and science. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you agree with that, and if so, in what way, or if you totally disagree with that, why? A crossroads of art and science. So to me, I'll explain that a little bit, how I see it. I think it's a crossroads of art and science because, of course, philosophy is very rigorous. You're building on uh, past arguments and you're trying to refine those arguments and you're trying to... You're, there's a there's an academic goal in place where you're trying to explain something the best way you can. But in doing so, I think the art form with that is that you have to sort of, at the end of the day, um, get to that this is just a explanation of something and then not necessarily a hard observable science in the, in the sense that, you know, math or physics or something is. So to me, that's a crossroads of art and science and, you know, a philosophy degree is an arts and sciences degree. So would you agree with that assessment or do you have a different way that you look at philosophy? I don't think there's anything wrong with it.
1: Um, the, so the, the first thing is that with philosophy being an art, um, many people would like many people's view of what art is, is as fancy, like just creative fancy, um, not mere aesthetics. Right. And so I already want to start by saying like that the, if, if you want to say that philosophy is art, um, you can't think that that means that philosophy is, um, unproductive or like unpractical, you mm-hmm. know, cause art serves so many practical goals. Um, art transfigures suffering, art, um, envisions futures, art, um, makes things that weren't understandable understandable uh, so so there's also that that element of art that's um you know completely completely epistemological like like that that knowledge requires um poesis and artistic vision in some ways okay to come from
0: to come forward if that a, makes sense a little bit and as uh you said there that Art and philosophy both serve practical uh, functions. I'd like you to speak a little bit to that um, because I know certainly a lot of people, and if you listen to the intro episode of this podcast, you know that I was a political science and philosophy major. So philosophy is something that's very important to me, but there's somebody that it's not uh, too important to. How would you get across to that person that philosophy really does have an impact in the here and now? Because I know there's a lot of, people who view philosophy as the armchair philosopher just mm-hmm. people with mm-hmm. their heads in books from written hundreds of years ago that really don't have a whole lot of bearing on what's going on today what would you say to those people yeah well you know every single time somebody says something like that also is um, it my move or your
1: move it's your move okay. uh, every single time someone says something like that they, they're they also the kind of person that it ends up because everyone does this ends up making a value judgment mm-hmm. um or you know they have something that they disagree with and, and they're like you know i think you're going about this the wrong way um and what you're looking at there is what Derrida calls like the right to philosophy, the, like one of the rights of philosophy. So he's got this wonderful book called Right to Philosophy. And there's a couple meanings for this term. So it could mean um, from right to philosophy, as in from legal right to philosophy. Like how do we go from the law to philosophical thinking? Okay. But it could also mean um, let's get right to philosophy. Why do we need to do all this why do we got to do all this fancy stuff? Why can't I just come right to the things in themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the meaning here, because he, he has like four of them, the meaning here we're looking at is um, the right to philosophy. So like what right does philosophy have? And philosophy claims a lot of rights. Uh, it claims the right to be essentially the founding or the the the, the background for every field, right? Mm-hmm. Every field has... Um, assumptions that go into it. Guiding philosophies, if you will. Guiding principles, axioms. Um, Science, I think, is quite obvious. It's got uh, implicit empiricism, uh, implicit um, issues with what's ethical to research and why. So I I think that it's it's easier to see it there. Um, And... Speaking on that, you get to the point where you start to realize that um, every time you want to look at something and say like we're let's be critical about this what is the why are we making this assumption mm-hmm. um, Not just like what is that doing, but why is it doing it? Mm-hmm. I think that you're already doing it in philosophy and so if you're if you're thinking politically and you're thinking we're having this argument about like well how do we how do we stop
0: inflation and someone says well do we want to stop inflation? I think you're having a philosophical argument. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So I I often hear uh, when I'm reading or in different conversations that science is blind without philosophy. Can you maybe explain that a little bit? Science is blind without philosophy. (sighs) We can compile all this necessary data. We can learn all sorts of new things that are helpful to us. But if we don't necessarily have a guiding philosophy, are these things helpful to us? is the knowledge useful in and of itself or is it useless without a philosophical system to organize it and then use it, you know, in a way that's productive for us or pragmatic? Yeah. Well, so the, the, the I, I already have an issue with the
1: way that we're talking about use. So I want to like, I want to be clear about, mm-hmm. um, use and usefulness because some things have value that we would call autotelic. Um, it's got value in itself. Um, uh, it 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 bootstraps itself is a term people like a lot now, uh, and so it's not necessarily always something that needs to be useful for itself. Like for instance, knowing something might be or, might, might, useful 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 for something else. I mean, so knowing something might be just part of what we desire, mm-hmm. and so having um, knowledge. Did I move or did you move? Uh, this is the last piece I moved having knowledge about um all sorts of things might be something that we just need to have and so
0: that's that's the first thing i would say about that i can agree with that so to also go along with this what do you think is the role then of a contemporary philosopher then so we have all of our greats here and i I thought for a little while about how i wanted to do this conversation with you and if there were any particular topics I wanted to get into. And then I thought more about that. And as much as I love philosophy and as much as I'd love to ask you to break down, you know, Hume's conception on causality, or if you could give me a rundown on, you know, early 20th century existentialism, as fun as that would be to the average person, I think <laughs> it would be a good idea if we just kept the topics general to um, sort of just talking about Philosophy more broadly as a whole. Yeah. What do you see is the role of the contemporary philosopher? Yeah. Someone and like I'd rather yourself just introduce things and make people interested in it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We, we don't, don't need sure. to. We don't need to scare
1: them off. <laughs> yeah. So, what's the role of the contemporary philosopher? Mm-hmm. Oh man. Well, I mean, what's the role of anybody? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> did you move again? Um, I think it's your move. Maybe. But yeah. yeah. So, so the role of the contemporary philosopher uh, is different now than what it used to be because, um, philosophy doesn't necessarily, doesn't like in, in terms of it, like describing it, it doesn't have a specificity anymore. And there's Mm -hmm. people that complain about this, um, and talk about it. So Chiaran, for example, in the short history of decay, talks about it and, and, uh, sees philosophy as decadent because it's, um, how would you say it? it, it because it's uh, no longer about something in particular. It could be about anything. You could have a philosophy of dance. You could have a philosophy of music. Um, and that might, might that might just mean um, telling us what these things mean to us, right? But I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, really. Uh, I think that philosophy can branch into these things and still have it's it's fundamental questions and it's it's essential
0: problematics if that makes sense. Okay. But in what ways can then the contemporary philosopher contemporary philosopher really engage with the here and now and what's going on? So I guess when a lot of people think about a philosopher, they think about somebody reading a lot and writing a lot of essays and they may not really see how that could really translate into something that has mm. and again, I'm mm. going I'll air quote the word value because right. that's a very a sticky word right but um they want to they want to know like what good are these people doing to society by just you know writing heady essays yeah. that the typical person isn't going to read or understand so now more than ever philosophy is interdisciplinary um philosophy
1: and philosophers are in like a pole position to be able to say well there's all this interesting stuff going on in psychology there's all this interesting stuff going on in social theory and there's all this interesting stuff going on in economics. And there's all this interesting stuff going on in pol- in politics. Mm-hmm. And how can I put all these things together? How can I how can I decide what order they're in? Right. So the, all these fields are going to have debates about what's primary. Right. Is it the mm-hmm. environment that's primary? Is it the psychology? Is it economics? Right. So is it is it all Marxist materialism? Is everything based in the mode of production? Uh, capitalism is driving everything. Consumerism ideology. You know, like how we dist- how we how we figure out this question is i think where the the best value of philosophy is is the ability to and and like the endorsement for learning as much broadly as you can while also having um expertise mm-hmm. and i think that the the expertise of philosophy in in particular is meta to it's meta to every field that's how i actually view it is it, because um it's you know the, the 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 first things for philosophy are questions of reasons and values and so what you're trying to get the upper hand in is how to organize thinking um uh, and what what the relationship is between thinking and values um if they're different um and how to arrange those two mm-hmm. those two things
0: um i think i need to move right uh yes i moved my bishop back right so to me, I really see that playing out today in a lot of people, to, to pick a buzzword, but call the, um, the either the economy or the battleground of ideas. And I really see the, the contemporary philosopher as the person on the front line who really sort of can, A, pose uh, very useful ways to think about things and organize our thinking, but also can you know fight against and dispel uh, more harmful ways of thinking about things that are out and about in the in the zeitgeist. Um, do you do you see that is the role of the the contemporary philosopher is to is it more so to produce um, helpful ways to organize information or, or like it, mythbusters or is it like yeah Just mythbusters b- to get rid of <laughs> yeah, or, or to yeah, directly yeah. fight against the more uh, toxic form ideas that are floating around out there.
1: You know, I actually. Think that I used to be more of like an arguer, MythBuster, and I still love to argue, but in a different way now. Mm-hmm. Um, so Deleuze is someone who complained directly about the negative here. He complained about um, debaters and complainers and, and debunkers, mm-hmm. and was in pref- in preference of proliferating knowledge. And if you look at someone like like a philosopher of science like Feynman, who is uh, uh, what he you know he called it methodological anarchism. As in we want to we, we, we want to allow people to produce knowledge in as many ways as possible, and then you know, if something turns out being wrong, they get something wrong, but that it'd be better to produce more information than not. Um, and, and I'm thinking about like being persuasive. Mm-hmm. And I was a debater, and I was pretty good at it. And you can you can get a lot done if you're in the right context with, like, just
0: going at someone's ideas and mm-hmm. being critical. But, but that, there's an require, extent... that requires some people who are willing to come to a conversation right. with an right. openness to changing ideas. Yeah. And so things things today are very stale. Um, and, you know, people always talk about polarization. And
1: I, I think that we, we know more than ever that people... Don't react well to simply being challenged and it's hard to just undercut someone's beliefs because if you simply undercut it, then what fills the void? Nothing, uh, despair, um, radical ideologies, demagoguery. So I, I feel like it, in many ways it's good to offer a positive vision or an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so for me, like I'm a crypto, I'm a crypto leftist. So I'll go to the gym and i 'm hanging out with all these forty year old white guys who all voted for trump right and they've all they 've got all these conspiracy theories about jewish people, mm-hmm. and you know they 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 think that trans people are a big deal in the country, and the 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 like being able to pose as like a buff uh you know, clean cut white guy mm-hmm. is very helpful. So I'll sort of like, you know, yeah. listen to them and pretend we fit in together. I know exactly and what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so like when they're, when they're talking about, oh man, Jews are doing these things and banks and stuff. I'm like, well, you know, here's all the banks in the world. And these are, they're not all of them by Jews. And I'm like, isn't it, isn't it like just the, these big ass companies that are doing it? Isn't it like they're lobbying? And isn't it, isn't it the people that they put in power? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, maybe, maybe it's like the system of things here <laughs> and not just Jews, you know, cause like there's all these random Jewish people. Are they doing anything? And you're like, well, not nah, not really. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it like that. Mm-hmm. It just, it just kind of came to me right now that that maybe it was the companies and not just Jewish people. Okay. And then you you get to the point where you're like, Oh, well, so, you know, like I, I saw a Pew poll or a Pew, Pew research and it said that there's, there's maybe only a couple hundred thousand trans people in the United States. And you, you know, I, I, I don't think that they're the, they're, they're the enemy for good old conservative people like us, you know, I think that they're, they're a fake enemy being sold to us by the media when I mean, we really should be concerned about the way that our communities are being torn apart and our schools are being defunded and stuff. And when you, when you say things like that, they love it. Mm-hmm. They love it. If you if you told them that you thought that because you're you're all socialisty and you like Marx, yeah. they're gonna fucking kill you. They're just but gonna shut it down right when away. When you talk to them about things that they value, they love it. This is this is something we find in the research really easily with like Medicaid for all. If you say, "What if everyone had healthcare that was free at the point of service because it was paid for by taxes?" They're like, "Yeah, like eighty percent. Like this is amazing." Mm-hmm. Uh, if you say Medicaid for all. Socialism. The, the, yeah, socialist Medicaid for all paid for by Bernie Sanders' plan. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Like, yeah. no, there's no chance. Huh. Uh, and especially if you tell them, hey, you don't have to pay an insurance premium. So, like, you pay more in taxes, but you, you ultimately your you know, your your taxes are less than the premiums. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, that sounds good. It sounds like Most people idea. don't go to the doctor because they don't have uh, really the access to it. They just yeah. don't go. Like they, and they say, I would go more if I could afford to. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's always... It's always this issue of like getting around ideology and I'm sorry, is it your move? Um, I think you moved that. Yes. Okay, so I've got to. Okay. So ultimately what I what I realized is that there's a place for arguing. Um, but uh ideology, when you know it's ideology, does not respond to when someone's possessed, right? When someone's possessed by ideology. It's 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 not something that can be responded to simply by um Attacking it. You, know? mm-hmm. you have to be subtle. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I think I think that when you attack people who are already leaning in extreme directions,
0: they just group up and defend themselves by going harder into it. Okay. So this... Uh, I, I like where you're going with that, and I'm definitely going to circle back there, but I really enjoy... Uh, well, a big part of this podcast is also the showcase of the arts and the artist. So in this case, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. Um, oh, no. Philosophy being... Something that I consider, you know, if not an outright art form, just something amazing that's worth talking about here. Certainly cathartic. Do you have um, sort of a journey that you can speak towards this? Were you always, as somebody who also engages in the philosophy sometimes, um, I I know I always just sort of saw that as something uh, internal to myself that was always there. Did you know at what point in your life that this was sort of a road that you wanted to go down? Did you just always find yourself just absolutely fascinated with arguments and how you can express yourself and advance or tear down an argument?
1: I did, but I didn't realize that that was philosophy. Yeah, Um, same here. I I think I started, um, a lot of people take the same, the same way and, but they take a historical route, mm um. So this is like Psychologism and Historicism Mm -hmm. So a lot of people Will will be like uh, Well where did this All come from How did this all start And by looking at How things started And realizing that Things weren't always The way that they Things weren't always This way They can um, Get to the point Where they're like Oh well I'm actually Just doing philosophy here Mm -hmm. And I started with psychology So I started thinking Like what's the motivations Why would someone Think that over this Mm -hmm. Um, Is there Is there a reason For that Um, Are these things coherent Are they Are they Are they able to um, be in the same space without contradicting each other and so In uh, the first pawn of the game it took a long ass time and so uh I, I think that i was always heading that way but i didn't realize that's what it was for if that makes sense like, i didn't
0: realize that's where it was going that was very similar to me so from a young age you had uh you were practicing the skills without necessarily knowing exactly uh what it was that you were doing um, what, I know you started in psychology when you were at UD and yes, this is another good friend of mine from UD that I've met. Um, what, uh, what made you sort of f- fall out of love with psychology? Was it falling out of love with psychology or falling more in love with philosophy?
1: You know, I, I think that psychology is just being doing, done a disservice. Like I've I've always been someone... Or for many years now, I've been someone who's gotten more in love with old psychology and the way that people wanted to talk about things before and phenomenology, um, Freud, Khan. and I think that they've been discredited, um, not not like legitimately in merit, but discredited um, in terms of like their their ethos, um, mm. pretty pretty unfairly. Um, but what's happened with 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 psychology is the way that it's just become a instrumentalized. Uh, overly technical field. Like there's... Interesting. There's nothing wrong with um, being technical. I think that philosophers are are the the masters of being technical. Um, So that's not something that I'm complaining about. Um, What I am complaining about, though, is the way that um, psychology, so much of it today, became this popularized, um, and there's nothing wrong with being popular, but but like popularized in the sense of vulgar, mass mm. um, that you could you could get these um, one-liners about how psychology works that tend to misrepresent like what what the actual points are. Um, you get you get this really like misbranding. Uh, and, and the way that th- a good, a good example here is the way that people think that personality research is like garbage. Like it's
0: like, it's astrology. It's a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's such a bad misrepresentation. But it, that's very, very depressing, but that's very much what the roots of psychology were with, you know, behaviorism and things like that. Right. Personality research. Yeah. Uh, is
1: behaviorism personality research? Um, you know, to an extent but i think that it, 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 traditional behavioral research was more about like um habits okay. than it was uh traits right we weren't okay. conceiving they weren't conceiving it as um mental constellations okay. as I, much as like um mixed genic response
0: okay i've gotten the sense in the small amounts of um psychology classes that i have done that there was a push at some point uh, to really try and formalize psychology much more. And do you think that, that, that push went a little too far? Like psychology wasn't being taken seriously enough as a science and they tried to over, um, overcompensate for rigorizing, if that's making up a word there, but to try and over formalize the processes. Like I'm, I'm a little confused at, uh, how that's ta- like how, how you would see that as taking away from well, so a really specific example is what happened with uh the
1: um DSM. So the DSM is the diagnostics and statistic manual. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically like here's all these disorders, here's how likely they are, and here's the symptoms for them. And this is this is exactly what I mean by like trying to make it uh rigorous in the sense of like we can we can point to this these this list of things here they are that's this thing um it's too simple and so what it does is it says if you have these symptoms then it's going to be classified as this disorder it, it's it makes the disorder um based around oh
0: i've screwed up so badly <laughs> uh, it makes... <laughs> That's make what time. happens when you're not just yeah. focusing on chess. I think you're right. <laughs> uh, so it makes... it makes. Um... Sorry to the people at home when there's some abrupt pauses. Yeah. We're uh, focusing on a game and trying to have a heady conversation at the same time. So to focus I'll you... I'll do that in the next round, but I'm just going to... It's okay. To Check. focus you a little bit there, you were talking about... Um, and what way do you think it was a mis- possibly a mistake that uh, that the the field of psychology tried to overcorrect and tried to over formalize itself to maybe what appeal to a more mainstream scientific audience or what? Right. Well, so the 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 issue with with uh, older psychology, let's
1: say, was um, that it's it's sort of dark. It's sort of shrouded um there's this difficulty with um i hate this so much there's this difficulty (laughs) you were the one who wanted to play yeah i know i just it turns out it's really hard to talk and play yeah um
0: (laughs) we can finish this game and then we can focus on the conversation a bit and then certainly play some more chess (laughs) that'd be nice because i'm just so sad (laughs) Um, oh
1: god um it so so basically what the dsm is doing is it's taking every it's taking the disorders and labeling them by the by the uh the effects that we're seeing right mm-hmm. but what it doesn't achieve is explain what the disorder is it it tells you what happens to somebody but you don't know what a disorder is and so we have this we have this view of mental illness as a very free floating thing that somebody has and it, you can, you can tell they have it because they have these things like they're tired and they're sad or they're mm-hmm. anxious and it gets right? sort of, but what is anxious? Like uh, what is anxiety? I see what you're saying? What is that
0: in somebody? Right. And can that be conflated with our other understandings of typical diseases? So when you have, right. you know, a disease, it's overly physical. Yeah. A disease of the mind. And I'm saying that in air quotes, people is sort of conflated with a disease of the body, which then causes people to start thinking like, well, there's something, you know, an imbalance in the brain. I hear a lot and things like that, which people then feel they, they, they resign themselves. And they're like, Oh, well, I am this, I have this. And then it gives you this sense of powerlessness where you cannot then work on, you know, your thought patterns and the problems you're having. Um, I, like I see that as an issue. And now I'm, I I also want to say that not every, um, you know, mental disease or even just disorder or struggle you have, um, is going to be the same and necessarily be something that can just be worked through with attention and, you know, care and thought. Um, but I think there is a little, there's a disservice to the, just the patients or the people, um, I'm talking about in a medical sense of, of psychology now, um, that, you were born with this disease and now there's nothing you can do about it. So I guess I'll just medicate for the rest of my life. Like, I, like, I, I don't, I see that as a particularly dreary view that I think psychology doesn't do enough to try and push back against. And yeah. And, and that
1: both of those things come from the focus on the symptoms, because when you lose the root, you start, uh, it gets replaced by our, 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 um, our physicalism about what diseases are. Um, you start thinking about like, what is my must be something physically wrong, right? There can't be something wrong with the the structure of someone's thoughts or like the the way that they've built themselves as a person because they've been traumatized, right? Mm-hmm. Which you know, which is that's a much more realistic way of viewing it is that there's a problem with their view of themselves, which is more based in their thinking mm-hmm. over time and the way they narrativize their life, um, and and the, the the way you treat this is this is the ultimate thing for me with the critique of, psych, of, of psychology now is. The way that you treat something is built around um, how it originates, mm. or at least that's how it should be. So if you're depressed and we call depression the same thing for somebody who has a chemical imbalance, like they really just have a chemical problem mm-hmm. and somebody who was traumatized because they saw their friend oh, die and saying. you treat it the same way, there might be a serious problem there because mm-hmm. someone who has a chemical problem, they don't really need to talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. They need the chemical thing, right? Yeah. Somebody who has a problem with living, which is what uh, Thomas Sask refers to um, when things that are called mental illnesses that aren't, like bereavement, just I'm bereaved because um, something horrible happened to me. Mm -hmm. That's a problem with the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And again, we're we're somewhere philosophical here. And there's a lot of people who knew this uh, maybe just 50 years ago. There was uh, Dasein Analysis. I can't remember these guys' names right now, but there's these guys working in Heidegger doing um, existential psychoanalysis based on Heidegger. There's some regular psychoanalysis. There's existential psychotherapy, like uh, Irving Yalom. Um, you know, so you have all these people that that knew this, and it's been mm-hmm. phased out by a uh, profit-based <laughs> um, medical system. And that's that's the other part that I should have I should have mentioned with something like psychology is is that it's part of medicine. Mm-hmm. Medicine is not about fixing or preventing. It's about covering up and treating and making money off of things. How can I take someone into therapy? Blah, blah blah blah.
0: So there's a lot of lip service to yeah. the, the former part yeah. of that, the fixing and preventing, but you don't see that actually yeah. taking well, place. Well there's all this shit about like mental health
1: awareness. Like oh we need um, to be aware, and, is, aware yeah. and aware and aware and aware. And I'm like there's good reasons to be aware, it's a good thing about it, but does anyone know about like what the fuck to do about this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you, like, like, what am I supposed to be doing right now if I want to kill myself? That's an interesting thing.
0: But um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I had a, I
1: had one more thing I wanted to say mm-hmm. about that. There's an article I just saw yesterday, and it was called uh, something along the lines of like why anti-authoritarians are diagnosed with ADHD and uh, all these different sort of like disorders, defiance disorders, right? And the uh, the uh, guy ultimately he go, he talks about his experiences and how he was. He was someone that was told when he was growing up that he was uh, a pushover and he was compliant with authorities and he was lame because he studied and didn't go in school. And all his friends were even more, you know, even more, like, rowdy than he was. Mm-hmm. He gets to do his doctoral program and he gets uh, told that, like, he might not be able to finish it because he's got problems with authority uh, okay. simply because he questions scheduling and stuff like that. And so he, he had this bad experiences with it and he's looking at – at uh the way that to get to the point to become a psychotherapist, you have, what, like 15, 20 years of education where, and and so much of education isn't like I'm learning stuff, I'm spending time on my passions, but like hoops and uh, yeah. navigating mazes that are set in front of you and, and listening to the commands and, mm-hmm. and doing what they tell you yeah, um, in the which... way that they tell you. And if you don't agree with them, they get mad at you. And so... There's there's this there's this issue there where
0: the people that get into these positions have a bias towards following orders, and that this could be an issue with the education system writ large, not just psychology. Exactly. Yeah, and so that's
1: that's another thing. But uh, one of these disorders had a, a condition that was like deficit in rule governing. Rule-governed behavior. What? And you're like, what is a deficit in rule-governed behavior? My like, goodness. you don't listen when people tell you to do certain things. Oh, like, my goodness. I, it's, it's questionable. Uh, what, what are the rules, right? Like, is, is it, like, this is exactly how you use the restroom and, like, this is how long you wash your <laughs> hands? Or is it, like, don't kill people kind of rule? Yeah. So there's, there's an interesting thing there. Um, but I, I think that it's true. And there, there's certainly issues with... And, and, you know, the, the people like Deleuze and Guattari were aware about this in the 60s. But uh, what, what is the authority of a counselor? What do
0: they... You know, how much power do they have when they, they're telling people what to and do? And we give them a lot of that power because we sort of think... Because if you can understand more of the mechanisms for how we study behavior and thought that they must somehow have a mastery over controlling thought which i think is a, a silly conflation i think it's your move i put you in a rock and a hard place on this one right um, I move for some reason but um another thing that I, I think is worth mentioning is that like you said the the primary outputs for psychology seem to be um very naturally you know gift uh presented to the medical field which you know makes perfect sense um but then there's other areas that are, you know, non-medical uh, to an extent of where psychology tries to push itself into, and I don't, I don't think very successfully. Um, when I was doing my first sort of intro psychology classes, there was many chapters in my books that would describe. Here's what you can do to get involved in, you know, the pri- the private sector as a psychologist, and a lot of it was just sort of. Uh, uh, this, this workplace psychology that had an, an absolutely, um, to me, disgusting amount of what to me was using, um, the, the science of something to push a non-scientific goal or narrative of like, all right, we're going to use psychology in the workplace to make people the more obedient, productive, More more effective. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then, therefore, it starts to also paint this picture as, like, this this background thing that we call the big C on this podcast, capitalism, um, that pushes this background narrative that if you're not fitting into, no, kitty cat, that's our chessboard. He's bad.
1: Is it, yeah. Was it here?
0: Uh, it was here. Um, yeah, if you hear some noises in the background, everybody, there's a, run, a very adorable, rambunctious little kitty cat running around this apartment. Um, but as I was saying... like that. Psychology I see gets used to uh, push that bigger background narrative of if you don't fit into this this mold of this capitalist system, yeah, there's something wrong. There's with a you.
1: problem with you, yeah, and not a problem with the way that life is being lived. Exactly. And if you're depressed right now, it's because your brain's fucked, and it's not <laughs> because you've been trapped inside for a year without a job. Mm and without your family mm. and without sunlight it's not it's not
0: at all no it no. is certainly because you are a failure and if you're feeling <laughs> restless or if you have a day where you're not you don't have anything to do there's something wrong with you you should fill your schedule so that you're always busy and you're always doing things because if you're always busy then you don't have time to feel sad yeah but don't don't be busy going to a protest <laughs> Definitely do not do that
1: because there's a big disease out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But go to your job as a grocery store worker every day, you
0: know, because yes. the, the big disease doesn't exist while you're at work. Yes, you are essential <laughs> there, but you are a nuisance out in, the, in that other. Context. Yeah, there's nothing essential about stopping police violence. Like, you know, <sighs> right, obviously we're getting, we're getting a little too sarcastic now, but uh, you you can pick up on some of our gripes here, people. But um, so is there? Is this something you would ever consider? formerly working on and writing about I'll or are you. you're you already are yeah okay that's that's wonderful to hear um what's it's my move oh shit oh shit okay oh what the wait yeah. wait a minute <laughs> it's kind of surprise. you what did you <laughs> i moved that bishop over i thought i had a counterplay for this i do have a counterplay for this okay um what was I just gonna say? Oh yeah, I was asking you about what you're working on, you're producing right now. So I'm I'm very happy to hear that you're writing about this particular topic. Is that one? Of, is that your main focus at this time, or like what are you spending a lot of time right now focusing on and working oh, on? Oh, God, I have like five. <laughs> of course. Um,
1: so I've been really interested lately. Um, for one thing, because my girlfriend was working in um, was working in um, some education stuff, was working on education stuff. Um, oh my God, he's <laughs> So because she was working on that and I'm in a philosophy education course, I was, I was thinking a lot about that sort of thing. Um, this cat. <laughs> but, uh, the, the, I guess right now my biggest interests have been, um, the city. So architecture, design, um, um, and, and you know the city's a, g- a great place for everything because it makes you think about like well who are people how do they work together mm-hmm. so g- ethics and groups um what makes life fulfilling because the city you know traditionally thought of as like the place where your dreams can come true um how to organize space but the 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 the, so the, the deep and interesting part is the way that um we make the decisions and as people going into how to build a city a city or a, or a neighborhood or a, a, an individual apartment right and we don't necessarily understand the ways that space and design affect us we don't understand the ways necessarily that the way things are organized um let's say has a constructs big... and produces what that space is for mm. and what what that space does and um, what we 're allowed to do in that what space. what we 're allowed to do in that space what's what's made convenient uh you know there's obvious examples so like is there uh is there adequate public travel mm-hmm. public transit is there park space are there uh, access to nature so can you have pets there um are the, cl- are the houses close together? Is there redlining? Are there ghettos? Right, all these sorts of things. And so, when when you when you remember that all of this stuff is being designed and engineered by people, and not and, and especially when you remember that despite the, what, what, what the big C will tell you, that this is all being done by normal people, essentially normal people with a little bit of training. None of them are perfect. They're not, and most of them are not the brilliant engineers. They're not the people who designed the Hagia Sophia. They didn't design uh, the, 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 the most beautiful Gothic cathedrals. They're not those sorts of people. Mm-hmm. They are trying to make a functional building quickly mm-hmm. out of cheap material and get it over with. They're not gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the and thing, they're not is evil necessarily
0: are, evil masterminds either, although some, it's just some sort bad, of happens sometimes. some bad things can happen. We were talking about this a little bit with the uh, the last two fellows I was talking on this podcast with um, there's a a space in downtown Dayton right now called the arcade I believe that's being um, revamped, so to speak. and i I heard UD is uh, taking a big part in that project and working with the city to. You know turn this space into a you know a once old not used building and you know revamping it into a place where people can you know commerce shops that sort of thing which all seems like a great and wonderful thing um until we start to bring up the conversation of gentrification and how these these projects can be put you know out there with all the right intentions and still have negative consequences when we raise the property values of a certain area and then push out the people who are living in that area. Um, and we were, we were just kind of spitballing about this a little bit and I don't think anybody has the answer, but like, can you think of a way that a project like that can be engaged without leaving the people in that community behind, so to speak? And is that, is that something that people can be more mindful of when they begin a project? I don't think I can speak to that really. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's too big. Too big. Too big. Yeah, too big. I, I mean, do. It's, a yeah. Problem.
1: But, it's a problem. But uh I can I can tell you where I would start. Mm-hmm. where I would start is with um All right, what the fuck? I would start with um Oh, I see what you're a saying. couple specific people. But the one I would go to is versus Derrida. Um because Derrida in his ethical work is really interested in um that was a good move move. yeah I know not so like not being able to know everything and especially about the other like I don't I think that it's actually a huge problem when we assume that people are like us um, when we say that everyone's just brothers and we're all in this community so the community has um, what Iris Young calls a logic of identity Mm -hmm. and when, when you have the same identity as the people in your community, you're all part of this group. You don't need ethics anymore because you actually have like this law that applies to everybody. And like, we all understand each other because, you know, we can, we can just understand ourselves. Um, and so there's a lot more going on with something like that than, you know, I originally thought. Um, so, you know the, the, there's a lot of work you can do with when we don't assume that everyone's like us and we mm-hmm. don't re- we remember that everybody has different needs and that there's this is other out there that we have to um work with let's say let's say they're a neighbor and we want to make them our friend um there's people out there who who, who this is this is when they write out a lot is, is how do you do ethical things when you don't know what the effects are going to be and you don't yes. know what other people are going to need and want um so that's where i would start but so, I, i'm not prepared to speak on that uh, right yeah now.
0: that's a very that's a very <laughs> difficult and multifaceted problem and i think the best we could do with a starting point is to be you know aware that this is an issue and then hopefully start to find ways that when we're working with our developers in these communities that we're at least mindful of this pos- this effect you, if we can't you know know everything that's going to happen when we do something but to at least be aware that this is a problem that is happening and then maybe start to find some ways that we can help people. And if somebody gets priced out of a location, maybe there can be some sort of thing in the budget that sort of compensates these people even a little bit would be better than nothing. But I certainly don't claim to have any, you know, grand solution to that issue either. But uh, here we are back at the chessboard. Okay, so we're back. We finished the chess game uh, so that we can focus a little more on the conversation. There will be a game, too. Had Matt on the ropes there for a little bit, but he skillfully and tactfully uh, outfoxed me in one. So Fucking scary. Horrible. <laughs> Horrible experience. Don't play Jack in chess. <laughs> I'll take the compliment. So... Uh, I did also want to ask you a little bit about since this is a podcast that showcases arts and projects uh, what are some other ways other create outlets some other artistic things that you like to get yourself involved with? I know you said you do a little bit of music I do a little bit of music uh it 's not that interesting yet
1: because I have technological problems but me too, uh... too. <laughs> that 's why this podcast <laughs> yeah. is being recorded on my phone right now. works well uh, you can 't really do the same thing with uh what I'm trying to do, but Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm going to, I might surprise you here. Uh, I I think that bodybuilding is an artistic endeavor. Okay. I'd agree with that. Um, so there's so many good things about it, but, uh, as long as you're doing it without like wanting to kill yourself (laughs) and like making yourself hate your body, Mm -hmm. um, you're, you know, if you're doing it the way I'm doing it, you're literally thinking about like how to engage in creating yourself.
0: Mm Um, what do you want to look like? Well, what do you want to be able to do? Mm -hmm. Um, and in a healthy way too, just like as I know you, you're very health conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diet yeah. and exercise, and So you're very aware of what goes into your body. Right. I'm not gonna. I'm not
1: gonna like crash diet or starve myself or do a dirty bulk or. You know, I don't even. I won't even eat meat, meat or milk or eggs or anything like that. So like, I'm pretty serious about being careful with it. The worst thing I have is this monster. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much a monster and a little bit of nicotine.
0: Okay, so what type of music do, do you get to make when you when you're feeling it?
1: Well, I I write a lot. And I write a lot of poetry, and so the sort of things that I write could be done in like spoken word with post rock. Um, I've thought about emo uh, and acoustic guitars. Got one right there, and I um, uh, like the sad boy rap, the cloud <laughs> rap kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. I like some of that. Nice. Um, and, uh, uh, ironically, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of poetic writing lends itself really well to like a, like post hardcore, um, screamo, scrams, that kind of stuff, okay. emo violence, yeah, all yeah. that sort of, all sort of fun stuff. And so a lot of my writing, uh, goes into things like that. And I think about things like that, but I, you know, I've, I've tried, but I just don't have the equipment right now to record that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to be like in a, like a punk band, like a hardcore punk band, Ooh, That'd be fun. but, uh,
0: now is not necessarily the time. Yeah. So what I what I actually make musically is industrial electronic. Ooh, I'm not familiar with that uh, that genre. I I so you electronic, to electronic music is yeah. near and dear to my heart. yes. So you listen to like
1: electronic dance music, mm-hmm. uh, industrial dance music, and, and uh, industrial like ambient um, would be um, depressing. <laughs> oh geez. Um Imagine Radiohead. Okay. You know Kid A. You know what Kid A sounds like. I can't the album. Say that. Do you know Idiotech? Yes. Um, Radiohead song Idiotech? Yes. So that one has a lot of the sort of stuff that I'm inspired by. Okay. On it. So All it's right. got this. Uh, it's it's driven by this crushing clanking rhythm.
0: Depressing and, and, and some odd, synths, but oddly cathartic. I yeah, think. and
1: and less less like uh like uh. Less up, less bright, mm-hmm. um, less bass drop kind of m- music, more. Um, uh, you can imagine like a factory and you're listening to the factory and you have, uh, the pistons and the steam pipes and it's like, one of my favorite artists is that fits your aesthetic very well. Thank you. Um, one of my favorite artists is actually author and Punisher who has a song called terror bird. that's really, really good. If you want to see it, okay. um, he built his own rig. Uh, his rig is, it's just, it's, it's incredible to look at. It's like, he's got like this uh, mouthpiece that he can like yell into and it has like this arm with a like piston steam activated like lever that he can like pull and crank and it has all these switches on it. And so he like set up this entire thing so he can like bring it across and it does a different noise oh, and wow. he can pump it back and forth and makes a different noise and he can like press stuff on it and he's got this mouthpiece and he can like put it into the mouthpiece and it down shit like pitch shifts his voice and all this cool stuff um
0: that's very cool kind of like Um, a mech suit kind of he's got his own little fucking mech suit it's very sick instrument very performing device that's very interesting (sighs) (sighs) that's definitely Um, very cool. that's that's definitely uh musical waters that i have not ventured into much that's very interesting do you have uh like a do you have like a any sort of ambition to put that that type of art, that type of music out in the world, or is that purely something you just like to make for yourself? I do. Uh, I don't think people like it. <laughs> but, I, I've sent it I, to people, and I've there's those always cars. there's always people who dig you know, stuff, and they they
1: tell me like, "Yeah, this is pretty cool," and I'm like, "Yeah, I think if I just had like more effort put into it and a little bit more expertise, like this could really come off." But uh, the, uh, the again, the mic I have to can't really record vocals very well, okay. and then. Um, it just needs refinement. I mm-hmm. need to get better with it. But uh, the, the bare bones is there. Like, I think I think what I have is the vision. So mm-hmm. I can set up, like, this is what it's going to sound like. Here's where the things are going to change. Here's mm-hmm. what's going to come in. But I can't quite get all the sounds I want. I don't quite
0: know how to produce everything. Well, let but. me know if you ever have a piece you'd like to share. Because what I'm actually doing with this podcast... You want me to pull one up? Is Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. What I'm doing with this podcast is every episode, the intro for it is an, another featured artist. So... You, you know, I'm trying to really focus on people that nobody, you know, either friends of mine that I get to talk to on the pad, podcast or just somebody interesting that is, you know, underground on their come up. Um, so if you ever have a finished product or finished enough product that you would like to share someday, maybe it could be the intro for one of your own episodes in the future. <laughs> the intro is one of, my, one of my shitty songs. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> one I of your like awesome that. songs. Uh, Sorry, I, I do have, I have it
1: sent to somebody so if I look through here i should be able to find one of these uh one of these songs i sent to somebody it might just be a while because i send a lot of emails
0: that's all right we'll take a little pause here and then come back when you find it it. that was the
1: bare bones for it i'm not
0: gonna gonna let you get away without talking about it a little bit on here so we just listened to uh two little snippets of songs that you put together there i'm finished Um, of course like the the bare bones and i can see i can see definitely what you were saying about it being an industrial kind of ambient sound uh very deep focusy type music um what would you do you envision like certain activities or things that that like that music lends itself to like or is this something that you would just listen to anytime you're in the car, or do grocery shopping, or anything?
1: Car, something like that. Yeah, I think I think that um, it's the sort of thing. Like I would make, I would like to make something that's contemplative. Let's say it's the sort of thing that you want to do it when your head's just wandering or just sitting there, mm-hmm. just sitting there. Um, I don't think it's something you'd go to a party for, <laughs> yeah. and I, I don't think that it's um, very exciting like in a, like a like a joyful way like i don't think you're going to be like
0: lifting weights doing it yeah, maybe you could maybe but um uh, it most definitely has a deep it. focus sense to it that i could see myself yeah. maybe in a weightlifting situation or something it's it's not going to be like get me hype, excited weightlifting, but well, maybe i could then do some sort of reverse like tunnel of vision on myself sort of i need to focus on this very deeply kind of thing so
1: do you know what binaural beats are and yeah the the isochronic the, tones
0: they the go back and forth tones forward? that reverberate off uh-huh. of your skull in this like equal right pattern so that was
1: actually something with with a couple of the things i've made was something i was thinking about a lot was because i used to listen to different wavelengths and frequencies and patterns of those like just for fun like when I'm reading and it would help me a lot or when I go to the gym I would do it and did you and so, just
0: see or like so yeah, be able, big able to notice interesting big improvements uh, focus c- yeah then could you, could you isolate those down to certain frequencies that you thought were better for certain things? There were some that were better for certain things. Yeah, They just, like, hit me better for whatever reason.
1: Like, Interesting. Like, the, the way that like, the pattern...
0: I had a, like, little, kind of I had a little bit of time where I was interested in that stuff, but I didn't go too deep down the rabbit hole, so... <laughs>
1: well, I, I, I... Ultimately, I found a couple that made me sleep really well, and I found a couple that made me read really well, and I found a couple that mm-hmm. I felt like I could lift to better, and, and it, it, it was all about, like, the way that they blocked out noise, I guess. Like, the way that they gave, like, a negative...
0: That could be actually just really like, helpful for me, noise. because I suffer from a good bit of tinnitus from just all the live music I've consumed over the years, and particularly uh, these very, very loud EDM shows I go to. And now, when I go to shows, I try to wear earplugs when I go to them, like the nice ones that filter the sound down, but just sort of soften it. But it always seems to be the case that those suckers just don't want to stay in my ears. And somewhere throughout the concert, those things, one either falls out, and then I'm like, well, I'm not going to give one ear more damage than the other, so I just say to hell with it, and I take them both out. But... Um, that could be very useful for me or, or certainly in a sleeping sense. Um, because just, there's always a constant ring in the background for me and it's, it's a little frustrating at times. Like, yeah. I don't, I can't enjoy silence in the way that I used to. So that's just, that's
1: one of those things that I thought about though, doing it is the way that, um, yeah, you know, it's hard, it's hard to enjoy silence because I don't really get much anyway. There's construction going on in the other apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people moved out and so I need to have something. Mm-hmm. Um, better than banging. It just hurts my ears. Yeah, but, uh, and hard to hear anything. So, mm-hmm. but what I was saying though is that, like, I think about that sort of thing a lot with the like the the moving back and forth, reverberation, um, the way that you can just with like a voice, you can like hit a frequency, hit another frequency, and like layer them. Uh, but especially when you have like, either speakers on the other side or when you're using earbuds or headphones, you can actually target which side of the head it goes to, right? So you can build, when you're making the songs, you can build the sound stage the way that you want to have it. You can pan it left or right, um, take it into the foreground, put it in the front, make it, like, reverb, make it echo, make it in the back, like, make it sound like it's coming from far away. Mm-hmm. And so, so you can imagine, like, close your eyes, you have the headphones on, you can, like, hear things coming from certain angles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that sort of spatial spatialization of space like i could hear i can hear like this thing clanging over here and then in the background there's like, like a like a detached moaning and then over there on the right side of the of, of my head there's a um like a synthesizer coming in and then it's going over to my left ear and stuff like that with like the way that the spatial arrangement of the idm i think is really interesting interesting um, and what what radio heads like uh let's say their their uh realization for kid a after okay computer mm-hmm. was that uh rhythm is king melody is dead hmm. uh and so when i think about idm and the stuff that the way that i want to do it um, idm being industrial dance music okay um Let's just say industrial, because um, I like 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 neo folk and ambient and random stuff like that. Uh, but I like industrial metal a lot too. That's what Author and Punisher is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about that sort of thing, it's it's much more about the way that the physical sounds line up, um, in the sense of like rhythm, okay. than than in the sense of uh, harmonies mm-hmm. and melodies. So it's not about like this clanging and that clanging match each other. Mm-hmm. It's about that vibration through you of the cl- of like the way that they the way that they hit. And so that's a really interesting way to think about music. Yeah, and so I guess I just find that as, as more. Um, inspiring for what I for what I'm doing like obviously I love melodies but (laughs) that's not exactly the kind of music that I'm making right now um it would be it would be in in if I was able to make a band it would be that sort of thing where you have these soaring guitars and then um like kind of high-pitched and then you have the um blast beat of the drums for like a like a black metal and then sludgy guitars sludgy bass that kind of complements the high-pitched stuff and then um, there's a really, really good... They're called Grindcore band, or Death Grind, I guess. Death Grind band called Cattle Decapitation. Um, <laughs> vegetarian guys, cool stuff. Um, and the formula for them, were like the last two albums that are extremely uh, critically acclaimed, was that they... People call it clean vocals, and it's not clean vocals. He's still screaming. It's just that it sounds more like someone normally singing, like ah, but he's like ah. It's just like high pitched. He's like ah, but like it sounds like it's coming out clean for some reason. And so he's doing this. He's doing this strange scream, hmm. and they have much higher, um, higher pitched, higher tuned guitar lines coming over the top of this vicious blast beat drum which is generally just like, you know, the kick drum, every, every beat. Um, and then a lot of kind of stuff. Interesting. Um, and then a lot of regular metal guitar, which is low and um, punishing. And so the, 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 the thing that they achieved that people, you know, not everyone says this, but like, I would say it doesn't really happen very much in, this area of metal for, uh, what they achieved is harmony and melody, especially harmony in death metal, which isn't something that was there all the time. A lot of the time it was abrasive and, uh, not atonable, like, like, uh, like abrasive and unsynchronized where it was just, it was like trying to be, um, or maybe just difficult to make those kind of aggressive sounds fit in a way like that. Mm-hmm. But what they achieved was to get this um, mixture of the, the 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 high screaming vocals and the low screaming vocals and the sludgy guitars and the higher guitars and the drum in a way that produced very interesting melodies and harmonies. And so I'd love to show you a song, but because uh, it's the sort of thing that people who don't like metal, actually, I show it to them and they're like, know, yeah, I can see why you really like that chorus. It's very... Very um, well put together stuff. And so that's another thing I think about a lot. Um, obviously, I can't make metal music without, like, I can't really scream here in an apartment. Yeah, you um, need a, some, some, some sort band. of studio
0: base. Yeah, yeah.
1: so I'd love to do that, though, because um, I'm good at screaming. That's, oh, that's one of my... Well, I, I think I sing okay, but I I I can scream.
0: Post uh post pandemic days, all you metal fans out there, keep your uh, keep your heads up for Matthew Frazier. So that's really cool. And you said earlier when we were off uh offline here for a second that, for you, making music is a lot of releasing things, not necessarily making something with the, you know, of course you want to make things that other people enjoy, but for you, it's almost more primary to be able to, sort of express something, get something out of you. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I don't know why exactly, and I've tried uh, for like doing other things, but when I set down to write or draw or make something, it's almost always uh, something like depressing or morbid, and you, people might say that that's like evidence of my being Dark and twisted. I don't think I'm dark and twisted anymore. I don't
0: particularly I feel like I'm pretty. I'm in pretty good space mentally. I, I, I love you, Matt. There are some times where you do come off that way, and I feel like I know you well I enough. Just say stuff like that. I, I know you well enough to know when you're kidding around, or at least I think I do. But uh, definitely, someone who doesn't know you, you can definitely come off as that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not depressed and uh, twisted, especially not anymore. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think that a large part of that is this. Uh, release and so so, catharsis, philosophically and like psychologically, has been understood as purgation or releasing mm-hmm. these emotions, um, and it's also been understood as purification, which uh, you know looks a little bit different, but it it, it still gets rid of something in a mm-hmm. way, like it gets rid of a problem. Let's say um, it it it, it um, corrects the arrangement, um, retunes. Do you, do you agree with that sort of conception of catharsis? I lean more towards pur- pur- purification, but I, I think that purgation is also something you can do with emotions. Okay. You can get them, like get it, like fulfill the desire and get rid of it for now. But um, I, th- I think that the, 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 the higher function is purification. Um, what I mean by purification here is going to look more like what Freud would call sublim- sublimation. So you take a like negative feeling and, or a, you know, like an animalistic drive and mm-hmm. you, abstracted into something higher, um, something valuable, something divine. This this, so Ford would case, say that like our sexual instinct can be sublated into like this beautiful, divine, artistic hmm. impulse. And so I wonder how to me that purifies the drive.
0: Used. In this case where you're you're saying that in the sense of that higher thing being the music you create, that the abstracted thing being the music Yeah, create. well
1: especially the value you're associating it with. So like if you have this depressive impulse or this like violent impulse let's say for like really brutal metal um and you turn it into this musical form Mm -hmm. uh, you actually i would say that you you purify the instinct because everyone has that Mm -hmm. and it's it's you're paying attention but you're purifying the instinct because by like not letting it control you and what Mm -hmm. you're going to do and by um like reconnecting it to something important um so people like like there's this traditional debate that we talked about before i think um in Greek philosophy, but uh, Plato was in favor of censoring tragedies and poems and poets because, uh, you know, what's the point of this? Like, you're just showing people bad stuff and people's bad decisions. Like, oh, there's just this all this horrible stuff is just going to make people sad and, like, tell them, it's going to teach them to do the bad things that they're doing, right? <laughs> Aristotle takes the, the cathartic perspective of tragedy, which is the, the modern perspective, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, Shakespeare. Um, Who would have
0: thought Plato would be such a Philistine?
1: Interesting. So the, the thing there, though, is that uh, what Aristotle is looking at is the way that... Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into specifics, but the way that experiencing a tragic play uh, fixes something. It's It resolves a problem that there is in, in like the human spirit, let's say, the human soul. Um, and so whether that's uh, a need that needs to be scratched or whether it's inst- moral instruction or whether it's um something else entirely like you, whether you're 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 uh you're realigning those desires to to the correct objects mm. um whatever it is there's something that that does that's positive for people and i think that most most people today would agree with that most people can see why Um, like sad music or like understanding someone's horrible story Mm -hmm. is good for them. And they don't, they don't view that as um, like, wow, you told me a sad story that just made my life worse. Mm -hmm. I, I, so I think that that's actually something that collectively we made progress on. I do think that's correct.
0: I've seen that debate play out in a lot of different ways recently. Um, And I, I want to say when things are done very well, that's how people look at them. And then when they're done poorly, they sort of see it more as just, uh, this is just sort of idolizing or putting yeah, on a Show me this cringe. Something bad, but like, or in, 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 a,
1: in the worst instance, it's an offensive display. Yeah. If you don't show, uh,
0: marginalized figures stories. Well, yes, it's, it's a bad thing. And that's exactly what I was getting at. I have, I haven't seen the movie. It's, uh uh, I I just Did you want Sia? What? Music. Sia? No. Never mind. I, um I'm talking about and I haven't seen this movie. I was just listening to NPR and I heard um they were having some discussion about it. Um, the guy who made it is Sam Levinas, that guy who made Euphoria, if you're familiar with that. I know what you're talking HBO about. HBO series and he made is in that, right? Yeah, and he made yeah. a, a movie recently that got a lot of lot of very negative critical attention. And what's the movie called? I don't know what it's called. I, I haven't even seen it. I just the discussion grabbed my attention because it was similar to this that the whole movie appears to uh be following a very dysfunctional relationship. And it's it was very interesting to hear these people's um their criticism of the movie and why this depiction of this dysfunctional relationship is bad and sets the wrong message in this, that or the other. And it certainly has those um, those elements that we were just talking Was about, it about this year, by the way. Yeah. It just came out, I think. Pieces of a woman? I don't know what it's called. Uh, Deep Water? <laughs> I don't know. Malcolm and Marie. It's, Another happy it's, day. It's Malcolm and Marie, actually, I think that's what it's called. It's a black guy and a white and a white lady. Um, I don't think it's looks like Zendaya's in it. Though. Oh, it looks it's Zendaya and a black man. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, without getting off track here, um, that it was a lot of very negative critical attention. And I just, I found it very interesting because some of our most beloved stories are of very toxic relationships. So you know, Stella streetcar named desire, that kind of stuff. And why is it that in this depiction we say like, wow, that is a beautiful complex uh, snapshot view exploration into the complex realities of, of people's relationships and lives and then there's the yeah. other time where people are like this is disgusting and gratuitous and It, it yeah, it idolizes or it objectifies the woman and violence and like it's it's weird how sometimes if done well And I have no idea what the criteria for doing it Well is where we praise it and then if it's done poorly or executed poorly, mm-hmm. we were like this is a disaster And so here, I think that that could matter, like
1: whether it's done well or not, but we're not, we don't pay very much attention to, like, I'm trying to just portray this thing and I've just done it poorly. Mm -hmm. Because we we tend to read a poor depiction as morally reprehensible. They've just done a bad thing Mm -hmm. instead of just saying, well, they tried, but they made a mistake. Mm -hmm. In in which case, we might have to read it differently. Like, well, you know, he's not a bad person. He's just screwed up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's an interesting thing that I like, like that you could, you could. Make, a, make mistakes with the portrayal, mm-hmm. that it's not immoral, it's just bad. Like, it's poorly done. Cool. But uh, I think that, I think that the, the issue here is that most of the time, that issue you're talking about with how people read a thing isn't related to the merit of the, of the, the movie or the show or whatever. I think it's standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is classical. And again, I can go back to Shakespeare. Uh, so Shakespeare is somebody who, when, and I would say it's convinced, convincingly misread, it's not it's not correct when he is read by um certain strands of uh, like naive liberal feminism and as well as some people who are quite reactionary talking about othello when it comes to race mm-hmm. they they uh, and as as well as merchant of venice when it comes to judaism uh they will read shakespeare as product of his culture right um so i'm in an african philosophy course and you get Uh, You get different African philosophers who talked about how we should just never teach uh, African students should just never be taught. Um, Shakespeare, Milton, anything that comes that's produced by the racist culture of modernity, hmm. right? That they should go back to the Greeks and just not read these people. Interesting. And my professor, uh, Ethiopian dude, and me, Kibete. both yeah, Kibete, We both agree that that's that's sacrificing way too much. Yeah, I would. Think but so. I think that there's a really big issue with it, um, and the big issue is that. So the first issue is that Shakespeare probably does the best job of any writer for thousands of years of showing the dominant culture the ways that it's other. Um, so this is just, this is way too specific, mm-hmm. but in Shakespeare, he you know because every every European culture wants to think that they're Greek and Rome yeah. um, when they're not, and so in Shakespeare, like Hamlet, for instance. Uh, the characters, the young male characters that are friends with Hamlet and himself are uh, associating themselves with Greece and Rome, but it becomes very obvious that their culture, their Danish Christian culture, is so at odds with those values. Um, Honor and suicide and all these things are being looked at differently Mm. in their world that they grew up in because they all got educated at Wittenberg. Mm. They all learned the classics. So they're thinking in Roman and Greek Culture mm-hmm. And they're living in a Danish Catholic mm-hmm. or Danish religious Christian culture. And so that difference is, is something in Shakespeare that shows how the the, 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 the assumption of being a prototype mm-hmm. of whiteness being just like the white European culture being a lineage from uh, the Greek and Roman culture is not true. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Shakespeare already is someone who's, who's, who's exposing that. And so I think that's the first problem. Um, but to be specific, to be very specific, um, or sorry, not to be specific, to be more general, I think that the the issue here is is when you presume that someone is a product of their culture rather than being capable of being critical. So do you read uh, this awful, toxic relationship as textual or metatextual? If it's textual, you're just telling the story. If it's metatextual, it's the person's like views being... In, on it right there's no reason to think that like for shakespeare for instance is imposing his views about uh judaism Mm. or um blackness and and there's also no reason to read them as negative on these stories Mm -hmm. um it seems to be always that there's a society critique where the different viewpoints are brought to the story and they play out. Um, And it's interesting though, though, because you have someone like Othello who's very humanized and whose plight is understood pretty interestingly and who's shown to be racially mistreated. Um, I wouldn't read that as a racist play. I would read that as a anti-racist play.
0: Yeah, very realistic to what was going on play.
1: And uh, in, in, in the Merchant of Venice, you have Shylock and Antonio put on equal Equal playing fields. Mm-hmm. You have the uh, Christian merchant guy, and you have the uh,
0: Jewish guy, both of whom take religion more seriously, and they're both marginalized so, in the play. So maybe this answers a little more of what I was asking about earlier about how is it done well that we appreciate it, and how is it done poorly? If it's done well, it's a as best as the writer can do, removing their own feelings on those subjects, and really just creating a a story and narrative that I don't want to say depicts how the world is because it's not always, you know, it's not always, you know, nonfiction sort of type things, but in a way depicts these very real uh, characters and the interactions they have and the way they engage with the world in a way that feels like, yes, that either did happen back then or does happen now, as opposed to somebody who's really just trying to push their own ideas on, whiteness, blackness or how things should perhaps, happen into yeah. the world and yeah, frame perhaps. it into it and I, I heard a lot of that criticism about mm-hmm. that Sam Levinas movie so that's and interesting I do think that there's a problem with that too and that could be that um,
1: then a writer is constrained to either discuss stereotypes or to be realistic mm-hmm. they're not given the um, the potential to uh, you know no no, no one's really an auteur to the extent that they're inventing everything usually mm-hmm. it happens to them when mm-hmm. they're creating it comes through them mm-hmm. like a more like a like an oracle than than like an author. Yes. But uh i it, it it I think that something like that prevents the imagination, the imaginary aspect where we could refashion these relationships. So I have to portray it either realistically or stereotypically. Mm-hmm. Um I can't envision something new. Mm-hmm. Um like that could be a problem. But uh so I think that the the, the, the difficulty that we're getting at here is um first of all how do you know that a writer is imposing their view on it and they're they're endorsing uh the thing, right? Mm-hmm. So does so, you know, like in, in 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 Soviet Russia, socialist realism was all propaganda for the most part. Like it, it's not that it's bad, it's just that everything had to endorse mm-hmm. like the state and the way things are. Um Mao has these revolutionary plays mm-hmm. uh that just show the working class in China succeeding, right? And so that's the world that the the these these movements we have right now politically want to see in terms of art. They're very platonic in this way that they want to have art that is you know simple and like un un you know like un un uh, unimaginatively endorsing certain things. And I I I see that as a problem. I think that that's I think that's at at odds with the Aristotelian view of like well we're gonna look as being terrible and we're gonna like
0: take it in. Mm-hmm. So, for instance. If you write about have you seen American History X? Uh I unfortunately have not seen that yet. It's been recommended to me very many times. Um let me see if I can think of another one. Have you seen Sorry to Bother You?
1: No. Wait,
0: Didn't you tell me about that? Was, no, it was mine Is that one created by?
1: God, I can't remember who made that one, unfortunately. That's the one that's the one where the um the guy works for uh like
0: he does, like, a th- like, phone sales, and he learns how to oh, use the white voice. Well, oh, yeah, that came out not too long ago. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've I mean, seen see I can think of things one. about it, but I haven't seen it it's myself. fucking good. I, um, yeah, it's on my list. I want to watch that one. God. You can go ahead and say what you have to say about those, I guess. Well, without... I want one that you know. Okay. Can you
1: think Can you think of a movie about, like, racism or something that you know? <sighs> Jeez. Um, or, or any kind of discrimination, I guess.
0: Like, expressly about that? Or it's, like, a big part of it, Yeah. <sighs> um that's tough i cannot i'm feeling disappointed at myself for not having too many things coming to mind that i've seen lately or at all that are very critical on those issues um i can't i can't say that i do i mean there's probably something there in the background but
1: so american history x uh ed norton's the the leader of this group he's like uh Growing up in high school, he starts becoming really radical, conservative kind of guy. And he ends up as a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. He goes to prison, eventually, because he curb stomps a guy. Horrible, horrible. Um, but it's got these very blatant depictions of racism. And now, you know, the story itself, he eventually comes to regret this. And so mm-hmm. the story's telling us that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. But you could write a story where you show racism and not show... not. Tell the, uh, the the watcher that it's a problem, mm. and I still think it could be good and have value, and I don't think that that means it's endorsing it. I, I see. It I could see. just be here's the portrayal, look at it, and I think without it's... telling you what to think about it, and I th- and I think that if if we assume that that means that we're endorsing it or that we're not going to be smart enough to know that it's racist exactly, and it's yeah. a problem, then that means that the culture is already a problem. The culture is already not the a problem, movie that's and the I think problem. it's
0: already. I think that's a a miss we shouldn't attribute so much to the the creative, the person who makes that thing that they get to dictate what the message is sort of from the outset. Like you should yeah, like it's you...
1: already believing a, a a flawed view of art and a yeah. flawed view that of view, interpretation. That, that the meaning that... is being is being passed along yes, by the creator of it. Exactly. Mean, as if a, a Hollywood box office movie isn't being put together by hundreds of people mm-hmm. to begin with. Um, and even a novel, if it was truly written by one guy and just edited by one guy. Uh, like this is not, and that the meaning of the this meaning is of one, that isn't even obvious to the yes, author.
0: But also that meaning is one-way construction. That the whether it's an artistic thing being made or something being taught, that there's the meaning over on this side, and the person has it, and they're trying to imbue it on somebody else, as right. if meaning isn't made in a dynamic back and forth way. There's, uh, I believe, it's Eve
1: Sedgwick. Um, I could be wrong, but there's an article about. Um, Skeptical and restorative readings, paranoid and restorative readings. Um, one is basically generous, and one is basically anxious. And so, uh, the 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 tradition of the masters of su- masters of suspicion, uh, Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, mm-hmm. um, as Ricourt called them, is all about unmasking something being suspicious and the 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 ironic thing about this is that the idea the ideology of today's liberal current is to do this so it's ironically the uh the ideology is of ideology critique which is one of the problems with doing ideology critique is how do i not get caught up in the way it's going right now because it's so religiously devoted to finding things to unmask Mm -hmm. we can see in our culture that we are so caught up in trying to do that that we 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 take things maybe out of context. We take things the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So we we have to interpret everything as as as, as bad. We have to make an, an enemy out of something that's not. Um, and so the op- the opposite side of that is the restorative reading, which is uh, being generous to it. Um, I'm somewhere in between. I like someone like Derrida, who is going to look at this thing and say, interpretation never ends. There's better and worse ones, but the interpretation is never closed. Circumstances change. New information comes to light. Mm-hmm. Um, the context shifts. That the 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 name of the author or the title of the work doesn't seal the meaning into the thing completely mm-hmm. and just wrap it around in this nice bow and say, "Here's what it means." That the uh, the work is always something under construction still. And so someone like Shakespeare can be lost to history. Yeah. Yeah. Can be lost to history if we decide to read him as this nightmare, which I think is the worst reading, but it's, it's also something that we could ourselves rebuild Mm -hmm. and we can reconstruct and remind ourselves of what's good about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so if somebody writes about this nightmare relationship who knows why they did it? Maybe mm-hmm. they had a nightmare relationship. Maybe it was just something that came to them. Maybe they saw one. Maybe there's something deep and unconscious that's being played out there. Like maybe it's about their parents. And maybe it's if, about them and their mom. It's even hard if to they say. do
0: have something that they are trying to sort of push as a message or across, is that in itself necessarily make it a bad movie? Then? And you don't have to
1: take the message. Yeah, you can you can reject the message and say, look, what else we can draw the conclusions other we can draw from the stuff that they've given us, right? Yeah. You get a lot of that with uh, with certain forms of propaganda uh, we talked about this earlier with the like the the, the the Jewish plot. I think people offer me the Jewish plot and I mm-hmm. say, well here's all the evidence you gave me. This looks more like look at all these giant corporations in this system we have that finances elections and stuff isn't mm-hmm. that the problem and so it's It's one of those sorts of issues where it's like um you have the same evidence, and then what conclusions do you draw from it mm-hmm. and so you know like I, I I think that I do think that we spend too much time castigating art. Uh, we spend too much time fighting in culture, and I'm saying this obviously as like a kind of like a, like a like a like a like. I love I love ideology critique, but I think as a more traditionally Marxist kind of person, traditionally materialist kind of person. Uh, we are spending a lot of time badgering people on social media and, and, and complaining about Netflix shows <laughs> and not the fact that Netflix owns everything, yeah. Again, have a monopoly on, on this sort of streaming and raise their prices and not the underpayment of workers on Amazon. It's, it's like, if Amazon runs an ad, we're like, fuck that Amazon ad. It's, it's problematic, but it's like, well, what, what, what about the way anim- Amazon mm-hmm. treats everybody? Yeah. Or what about, what about the, the way they, they source their. They source their stuff that they're selling, and blah 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 blah. And so for me, the big C is always you know, in the background. Yeah, like there's a lot of there's a lot of wonderful moral and and uh, non moral education, and and there's a lot of just beauty that can come out of aesthetic critique and, um, you know, like literary criticism and and uh, film criticism. I love the philosophy of film. I love all this stuff, but I I don't think that we're doing it the right way. Because I, I think that what we're doing is we're running at it and saying, this thing says the things that I like and this thing doesn't, and that's what makes us good and that what makes this bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that... At risk of being cancelled. No, <laughs> uh, 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 that there, the, the legitimately what we could use is a space of art. And and this is the thing, is that what art gives to us is life-improving, uh, li- you know suffering, transfiguring stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not just... Propaganda, And I I honestly think that if you're a marginalized person, which we're all marginalized in different ways, if you're marginalized or you're depressed and you're suffering, you are going to be better off with the thing that transfigures your suffering than with the the mild attitudinal improvement we might get Mm -hmm. from the propaganda piece. And so by reading everything as political, merely political, and by forgetting that artistic part of it, I think we do more harm than good. Because... You know, it, you can imagine if you're, because let, let's let's put it behind us that some you know Netflix show is going to like end racism. <laughs> if you are suffering from racism, what might change you more is a transfiguring piece of art rather than something that's politically useful. Mm, um, I see what you're saying, and that could be anything. You know, that might not even be about racism. It yeah. could be, and so th- I think the the the, the 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 criticism of me there would be something along the lines of like, yeah, well, the good political thing is going to be the good artistic thing. Mm. Maybe. I think probably that's true, but that by over-focusing on whether or not it says what you want, you still forget that it's like, just by deci- by deciding at the beginning what the movie's going to say, mm-hmm. you don't get a good movie, usually. You don't yeah. produce a good, um, you know, life-changing piece of work. That is usually not how it happens. Mm-hmm. And so it's really not that simple that we're going to say, like, here's the good goals that we want to have, here's the good endings, here's the lessons that we want to have, we're going to write the thing, and... Um, when I start realizing that's what I'm doing when I'm writing, I stop writing. If exactly. I'm like, I'm writing this because I want to make a point, I'm like, no, I'm not going to write it anymore. Really? Because, because what, am, what am I writing? writing? Something you're working on artistically? Yeah, like a book. Um, I've done that twice. I'm like, what, what, am, I, what am I writing because in this your, narrative for? I'm sorry, for but in, your philosophical, point?
0: in your philosophical writing, you are...
1: Making the point, yes, exactly. Point. Yeah. Okay. If it's fiction and I'm telling a story to make this point, uh, I've see. lost any interest see, in it because see, I'm like, I'm literally just propagandizing. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and I don't, I don't want to be involved in that. I want to produce something like gorgeous.
0: I don't want to. Yeah. So, so for me, that's the issue there. So a question that runs sort of tangential to this discussion that I've wanted to ask you for a while is uh, the question of separating the art and the artist. And I've seen this come up more and more a lot recently. And there's several things I want to ask you about it. But uh, I guess we can start with, to what degree do you think that it's necessary and acceptable to do so? Um, uh, Like an easy example um, in, well, there's not really any easy examples. But we could look at somebody like Shakespeare and, you know, we could look at, you know, there was, he came from a different time and there was... um some racist elements in his place. Well, I don't even want to go with that. Let's go with an easier example. So in the, in the EDM community, uh, my, my friends are very aware of somebody known as Bass nectar. Uh, we're not going to get into what he did, but he did some not cool things, some very bad things. And, uh, now I have a lot of people who very much have, uh, had wonderful experiences with this person's music, but then are devastated because of what the person himself has done with his, his position of power and now they feel like they can't enjoy his music anymore. Do you feel like that is um, an appropriate response, or do you feel like you can go ahead and enjoy somebody's art despite that person being a fucked up person? Yeah,
1: I still feel like you can enjoy it. I, I do lean that way. And there are some that I even say you you enjoy it, um, not in spite, but like that part of it is enjoying it because they're like that. Mm. Um that it it shows you in a, in a way that I want to remember that the sort of things that someone produces is not tied to who they are. Mm. It reminds us that. There's things that you love that are made by cretins. Mm. And then there's things that you hate, right? You think this is a racist piece of art. It's also th- possible that people that you love or could love produce something you find awful, mm-hmm. and so I want to remember this because if the logic works one way, it could work the other way I think mm. so when we want to say this piece of art that I find uh, offensive means that they're terrible as mm. a person right um, there's a temptation to think that way yes there's a temptation to think that way, but we won't allow we, but but we also like have this other side where you know they're a they're uh, a piece of shit who made good stuff mm-hmm. that I know that I like. And I have to just be like, yeah, I, I like their music. Like, I think he's a piece of shit, but and I like his And we know that
0: that is just a fact of the world that some real fucked up people make some incredible things. Yeah.
1: So I think that when you recognize that, you've already recognized this, um, this schism, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a good schism to be aware of. I think it's actually really helpful to remember that and enforce that. But going back to the actual point here, can you, like, listen to this stuff? Well, me, definitely, I'm very good at separating the two. Um, I think that if you're going to listen to it or you're going to, like, watch the thing, you don't want to pay for it. Don't give them money if they're a
0: bad person. Yes. Sure. Um, Looking at you. um, There's really interesting stuff here about how to forgive people. What to forgive people for. The chick who ate Harry Potter having some. J.K. Rowling. Oh, my God, no. I hate her. Looking at you, J.K. Um, I hate her and her work. So <laughs> okay, so that's an easy one she for you. She just goes in the dumpster, okay. or, a grinder <laughs> or something. Yeah. Uh, well, to a lot of people who were beloved Harry Potter fans it's growing like, up, like how sister, can I ever you know. like this again? Yeah. Yeah, and but the, that's and, you know, that's To rescue same. it for you, Harry Potter has
1: so many classic tropes and so much classical mythology and stuff. Put into I, it, like, I particularly like, wasn't a huge fan, but none of this is her. She just happens to be the person who wrote the thing. Like right, she right. just happens to be the person. Who wrote the <laughs> so it's okay. Uh, Harry Potter could have been anybody. Okay. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, so do I... I used to have more to say about this, and I feel like I've forgotten some of it, but do I have anything to say about what's going
0: on with separating
1: the art from the artist?
0: Yeah. Um If if there's anything any recent things that come to mind for you or anything else, certainly I I I find myself agreeing with the points that you made that you can enjoy somebody's art and then if to the best you can maybe not try and financially support that person if you don't agree with what they do, but you can still enjoy the art they create.
1: Yeah, I think maybe an interesting example is Louis C.K. Um, uh, I I'm not gonna go into whether or not I like what I think about what happened with him. Yeah. But you know, people were mad about what he did. Mm-hmm. He. I'm not sure exactly. He didn't exactly apologize. He was kind of just like, "Yeah, I did like weird stuff, but like yeah. I don't feel like I did anything wrong cuz I told them I was going to do it yeah. and didn't have yeah. So it's just weird. Um but the thing with Lucy K is that he's always told his audience that like he's a sex pervert. Yes. Like he's always been like, "Yeah, I like to jerk off and I'm weird." and uh this is my thing is like so people always knew this stuff about him that degree of separation well all of his perversion is like what makes his comedy good yeah and so there's an interesting part there where it's like well why can't I enjoy the comedy if like him being fucked
0: up is what produced it I don't know (laughs)
1: yeah
0: um yeah I see what you're saying there absolutely I find myself it doesn't mean I have to be fucked up like him or endorse what he does Yeah, yeah exactly absolutely
1: Okay. Um, so that's an interesting one. Uh, I want to. I want to know. I want to see if there's something like
0: more philosophical and less like current culture. Yeah, but I'm having trouble. I like wish I spent some time something coming up with some examples of that because I knew I wanted to ask you that question. I just yeah. wish I came up with some more examples. I, I guess then. for me, hermeneutics is what
1: liberated it for me. Like, like, uh, so interesting. hermeneutics is the field of interpretation. Um, you've heard of the, maybe the hermeneutic circle. I've
0: Yes, um, you I've... get
1: like assumptions, and you have like your interpretations of the art, and then the new interpretations inform like the assumptions, and then it just goes in this sort of circle. Sounds vaguely familiar. Um, but so hermeneutics, how to interpret stuff, blah blah blah. Uh, I think that what you learn with this field of study pretty quickly is that, and this is this is something Derrida is very good at, is that the meaning. Of it of a work isn't present in it um isn't transfixed to it um is it and then that the the author is absent from it the the meaning plays around this sort of thing right that um even as someone writes, they don't necessarily know what's transpiring. There's actually a passage I would love to share with you if, you, if, I, if I could.
0: Please do. And there's, uh, in some of my conversations I've had with artists so far, uh, that's been a, a common theme of cre- beginning the process of creating something without uh, having uh, necessarily what it is they want to have fully worked out or in mind as the thing creates itself as it goes. Yeah, I, I know what this is. I swear, I've got it like, right over here. <laughs> you got a lot of books in here. Yeah, but I, I tend to know where things are. <laughs> I believe you. Um, um, yeah, this I, I don't think I've ever seen quite this many books in somebody's private. This is only half of it. Re- this is only half of it. Half the of it's la- my parents. Oh, my goodness. I, I left, left half left. of it there. So several, oh, there's overflowing shit. bookshelves all over me, everyone listening. Where is, where is it? Where is it? I'll give you a moment here. I'll take a little pause here. All right, he is found. Uh, I don't know where the passage is yet. <laughs> I know where it's at, but like... I'll I'll it. It. Well, he's found the book, everybody. So to uh, to prime to prep, what uh, what point were you getting on? Um, so Derrida talks about
1: um, like like the phenomenology of writing. So like, what am I actually like? What's actually going on when I'm writing? Um, and for him, he describes a uh, force, a force moving through him. Um, that when he's when he's having an idea. The idea is coming to him, and he's mm-hmm. writing it. He's not, like, authoring it, yeah, that's good, put that, it's, he's just sort of going. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the thing there. And so it's, it's about the way that, like, artistic creation, poesis, isn't, I don't know, like, like, putting myself in the driver's seat as the, like the, the eternal author of it seems like a problem. Can you explain that word, poesis, too? Um, so uh, it basically means, like, to bring into creation, okay. um, artistically especially,
0: should be here. Okay. Got a lot of marks in that book. Oh, yeah. Tons, tons, tons. Um,
1: Okay. So the book is Writing and Difference by Jacques Derrida, and the section is, the first section, it's Force and Signification. So I'm going to quote, I'm going to um, leave out a couple lines, you know, have some ellipses. Mm-hmm. You ready? Go for it. To write is to know that what has not yet been produced within literality has no other dwelling place, does not await us as prescription in some topos aranios or some divine understanding. Meaning must await being said or written in order to inhabit itself, in order to become by differing from what it is meaning. This is what Husserl teaches us to think in The Origin of Geometry. The literary act thus recovers its true power at its source. Communication in literature is not the simple appeal on the part of the writer to meanings which would be part of an a priori in the mind. Rather, communication arouses these meanings in the mind through enticement. The writer's thought does not control his language from without, the writer is himself a kind of new idiom, constructing itself. Mm-hmm. My own words take me by surprise and teach me what I think. It is, writing, or sorry, it is because writing is inaugural in the fresh sense of the word, that it is dangerous and anguishing. It does not know where it is going. No knowledge can keep it from the essential precipitation toward the meaning that it constitutes and that is primarily its future. There is thus no insurance against the risk of writing. Writing is an initial and graceless recourse for the writer, even if he is not an atheist, but rather a writer. Um, Thus, the notion of an idea or interior design as simply anterior to a work, which would supposedly be the expression of it, is a prejudice, a prejudice of the traditional criticism called idealist. Skipping ahead a little bit. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. It um, might actually be good. Okay, and to the best of your ability, could you try and give your own uh, interpretation, or just sort of try and translate to the layman what you think he's trying to say? Which I I think people can definitely. I think it's well written enough that people can understand a bit, and it it's beautiful thing that comes across to me that writing isn't um, like we've been discussing in art. Also that. The the idea isn't there a priori, isn't there ahead of time to be put out into the world. It creates itself as it goes. But I'd would yeah, love to hear yeah. your interpretation on this as well.
1: Well, so it, I mean it's it's so and this is the part about Derrida that gets so misunderstood, is the way that he's such a philosopher. Mm. And there's you know, there's nothing about Derrida that's like uh foolish making stuff up. Like he's so embedded in the in the classical questions. So embedded that people miss it, actually. Um so here he's like, he's explicitly saying, like, writing shows us that it does not conform to this uh, sort of platonic a priori model. Like, I've got all the ideas already. They already exist in some central divine understanding. I access the ideas. I refer to these ideas. I am inaugurating them in my writing. Mm-hmm. I'm producing them they are contextual they are objective to the world mm-hmm. not um absolute but objective to the world um hi ketty <laughs> so that um that the way we understand meaning and the way that we understand that it comes through the the way that the words differ from each other and the order that they're in so the context right mm-hmm. um of the way that the text is arranged that words don't have meanings as absolute units of meanings that are there with the word, but that words have meanings that are deferred words, have meanings with each other in a network. So mm-hmm. in a context, right? So that when you have a word, um, what's the word that has two meanings? Uh, as in like, just pick one or like either, either it's uh, it's one of those words that's got tundra. two different spe- it's got analyzed, spelled two different ways and means All two different right. things or a word that legitimately just has two meanings. Uh,
0: uh-huh. that's a good question. Uh, None are coming to
1: mind presently. It always works out that way when you when you can't think of one. Um, Train. So I Ah, say the word train. Gotcha. Right. Okay. If I just say train, or um, you just see the word train, Mm -hmm. you don't know whether I mean a locomotive or whether I mean like physical exercise. Yeah. And so. You know, this gets more and more complicated as time goes on and with more detail, but you need that context to Mm -hmm. tell you which one because the word doesn't contain the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. The meaning of it is derived from the way that the word differs from ones around it. So when I say the train is on the tracks or my training is on track, it tells you two different things because of the way that it's organized, right? And so, the point is that the meaning. So the way the semiotics functions Mm -hmm. is about the difference of the signifiers in Mm -hmm. the system and not about uh, something that's in every word, every sentence, just like fixed there. Right. And here's the thing. That sentence, my training is on track. Mm -hmm. What if it's satirical? What if I'm joking? right so that these pragmatic conditions as well as like if there's an entire story before i say that let's say my training is on track is a punchline to a joke where i've been i've been talking about trains being on tracks <laughs> and i said someone asked me about my lifting and i'm like oh my training is on track right let's say it's a joke it's a really you don't joke, it's a <laughs> terrible joke yeah but you don't know that um something like that puns or something yeah. without that context around mm-hmm. it and so when I when we say something like interpretation never ends well the author's view on uh well for one why is an author's view important like in in what world is the director of a movie supposed to be the moral authority like how are they some sort of ethicist par excellence that we care what their view is really but <laughs> the author's view or the director's view is not something that can be adduced deduced just by like a couple of passages it's like well, what about the entire over, what what about the entire work what about the other works what about the the other things they've said uh, and and do they understand what they're doing so there's all these problems with it and i think that um that's the way that derrida relates to it here is it's like when you recognize all these ways um that this is wrong um it's really interesting the ways that you can get from all the ways that this way of thinking about art is wrong to all the ways that, like, let's say there's problems with idealist philosophy, with our view of what the mind is, with our view of what language is. And so to come back to our earlier point about, well, what is philosophy doing for people in the modern age? Mm-hmm. Well, all these things that we – that that we that we all these, like, orientations we have about the way we talk and the way we listen to it and enjoy – Uh, Media And the way that we engage politically have all these assumptions. And I've just, I think I've just shown decently that these, these, uh, these ways we do them are tied structurally to Mm -hmm. philosophies and, 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 and schemas that we're not aware of. That they're implicit mm. and so by being engaged in philosophy we can make that latent content manifest we can see all the ways that these systems are around us and that um our own culture informs certain things we think etc cetera, etc cetera, and no longer be victim to it no longer let it determine the way that we do things and think about things and uh that would be to me what i would call freedom oh baby so right.
0: i love me some good structural linguistics um I think me and you both have uh some things we need to do today. So I, Call it s- here. I want I not not One quite yeah. I want to wrap this up a little bit here. Um so you got to- five minutes. <laughs> thank you. To anyone who's made it this far, I really appreciate y'all sticking around with this these uh heady conversations. I know I, I, I prefaced in the intro episode that this would from time to time be uh episodes here, so thank you. I do want to ask you, so you're in your, your final year as an undergraduate at mm-hmm. UD, yep. and you plan on taking a doctoral uh, PhD track, and are you going to do that with UD as far as you're aware? UD U doesn't have it. UD doesn't have it? Okay. So you're looking elsewhere. Mm. And then, do you have any published academic works
1: yet? Uh, well, so the stuff that I did get, like, published was in, um, like, conference journals mm. rather than, like, circulating journals mm-hmm. and so i don't think it's the sort of thing you can get access to still gotcha but gotcha. i have published uh literary work do you yeah ironically i have published poetry and and writing and like short short fiction if any and not, like, if published if anyone
0: was interested in ever finding that is there a place they could go to find any of that i don't know i think that there's a website um but uh, okay. i can email it to them all right well we could uh if anyone's ever interested please reach out to me or we could also you could send me some sort of uh email and then i could Shout it out at a different time. But uh, be on the lookout in the future, all my friends uh, who appreciate uh, uh, any sort of the intellectual arts or the writing, any of those things. (laughs) Matt Frazier is going to be on the scene. So thank you, everyone, and goodbye, and we love you.